0: Thanks for listening and sharing Our Body Politic. As you know, we're new and creating the show with lots of input from listeners like you, so I want to ask you a small favor. After you listen today, please head over to Apple Podcasts on your phone, tablet, laptop, or anywhere you listen and leave us a review. We read those because your ideas matter to us. Thanks so much. our body politic i'm host and creator for Rai chidea here at our body politic we're working on new and deeper ways of listening to you making sure that you are heard whether we're talking about the tragedies of the pandemic or how unjust the economy can be we don't sugarcoat reality but we're also here to lift up ways to thrive not just survive Telling our stories is one way that we thrive. The good, the bad, and the ugly can all be transformative when we learn from each other. So this week on the show, I talk to a Black woman police chief about the unrest she's seen in her city, and I go over the important political news and what it means for people of color with Erin Haynes of the 19th. We also speak to our business contributor Ruth Umo of Forbes about the role that corporations play in the country's racial reckoning. Plus, COVID hits higher education hard and a conversation about the history of black migration with author Morgan Jerkins. We are so glad you're with us on this journey. After historic peaceful demonstrations in major cities across the U.S. this summer, some questioned law enforcement's responses and several police chiefs were forced out or resigned. One of those resigning is Renee Hall, an African-American, who's the first-ever female police chief in Dallas, Texas. In 2017, she inherited a police force reeling from a sniper killing of five officers the year before. And in her second year as chief, she dealt with another tragedy. Here's a news clip from CNN.
1: We are breaking news out of Dallas, Texas right now. A jury has just found a former Dallas police officer guilty on murder charges. You remember Amber Geiger. She was charged last year after shooting and killing her unarmed neighbor.
0: Chief Hall also served on the police force in her hometown of Detroit for nearly 19 years. We spoke while she was at her office in Dallas, working one of her last shifts as police chief. Welcome, Chief Hall. Thank you so much for having me. So you are a Delta. You're obviously a daughter. You're a police chief. You know, when you are with your friends and your family, how do you think that they perceive you? You have a lot of different things that you are. Who are you with your people?
2: Um, When I'm with my people, I'm Renee. When I am the chief of police, I'm Renee. Uh, When I'm a Delta, I'm Renee. I am a child of God. And I recognize that everything that has been given to me has been given through his grace. Uh, So I am always humble in that space and always thankful uh, for every opportunity that has been given to me. But I do recognize that um, it is all given and what is given can also be taken. So none of this uh, defines me. I am Renee Hall each and every single day.
0: When you talk about what can be taken, I can't help but think about your father's story, who was killed in the line of duty as a police officer when you were just a baby. How do you think of the contribution he made, and how did it shape who you are?
2: I had no desire to be the police. Uh, If you had asked me, um, I was going to be a lawyer. But my grandmother used to say, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. And so I just believe that my father's death, um, I was six months old when he was killed in the city of Detroit. Um, I believe now that there was unfinished work. And I believe that God put me in position to meet a graduate school professor who happened to be the chief of police in the city of Detroit, um, who actually took to me and mentored me and brought me to the Detroit Police Department uh, who said that this was absolutely the job I was supposed to have. And he told me sitting in a classroom, you will be a police chief. I see it. And I just believe that that was my father living through me uh, and me having to complete what he was not able to.
0: What's the thing you're most proud about from your tenure, which is coming to an end as you've decided to step away from this job. What is the thing you're most proud about?
2: So this job for me has always been about a community, building relationships and bringing people together. And for as far back as I, I can remember, there has been tumultuous relationships between police departments and, and community. And when I was in the city of Detroit, I was responsible for creating A community engagement program uh, that all new recruits who came out of the academy had to uh, spend one week in the community, feeding the homeless, uh, visiting with seniors. Uh, You know, they would the uh, reintegrated individuals from prison spend an eight-hour day with them together. So I can guarantee you, those officers now, when they come in contact with an individual who has a criminal past. You take that individual for who they are and what is happening in the moment. And here in the city of Dallas, um, a place that has a history of racial divide and segregation, uh, when I arrived here, there was uh, community groups and activists of all races, nationalities, who had tumultuous relationships with the police department. And they had been trying for 40 years to get an oversight board, someone who could put a checks and balances in place for the police department. And it was uh, under my leadership because as a police chief, if I was not supportive of it, I do not believe that it would have moved forward. But I was very supportive of an oversight board, had grew up with one in the city of Detroit. And so we were able to get a unanimous vote from council to have an oversight board. Um, So I'm very proud of that to say that that is a milestone.
0: In your resignation letter, you talked about a series of unimaginable events that happened in Dallas. How do you make sense of this time in your life? You know, when I look at
2: the Bible, when I read the Bible, I think about Esther. And in Esther, uh, Mordecai told her that she was called for such a time as this. And so this has been a very tumultuous year. When I arrived, what was very trying and, you know, very tough was the fact that the officers here in the city of Dallas had been through one of the most horrific times in their lives. Five officers, uh, four from Dallas and one from our dark uh, sister police department were killed. And so arriving here with that much hurt, pain, uh, and brokenness, and so coming in, there had to be healing. And so it was an opportunity for me to do what I believe in, and that is being uh, holistic, praying, and giving our officers the resources that they need that they could be successful uh, while doing the job. Uh, My grandmother used to say, if you don't deal with it, it will deal with you. And so I was able to, sitting in this seat, uh, provide those resources to the officers. So I'm thankful for
3: that.
0: Let me ask about a moment that was one where where your department got criticized for detaining a bunch of protesters after George Floyd was killed, I believe on the fourth night of protests, but not filing charges against them. If you had to go back in time, and this was hundreds of protesters, would you have made the same call? And why did you make that decision?
2: Absolutely. One of the things that, you know, the story is not told is uh, we identify this protest as peaceful Mm -hmm. and uh, I would disagree wholeheartedly. And so uh, that decision was made because um, those 700 protesters went on a bridge that was an actual freeway. So there was traffic coming onto the bridge while individuals were walking. We're talking about men, women and children. Uh, And so, you know, this was a crowd who had determined that they were going to break the law, and it was clear. There was civil unrest in the city of Dallas like we had never, ever seen over the last three days. And we were just not having another day of that. And I want you to keep in mind that three days prior to that, we were dealing with individuals trapping officers in vehicles, trying to set the vehicles on fire, throwing Molotov cocktails, bricks, frozen water bottles at our officers, For a two, three day period. And so this was uh, an opportunity and a conversation that here's what we expect. And if you go beyond this, here are what the consequences are. So, uh, yes, we arrested some 670 people on a bridge. And if I had to do it again, I would arrest 670 people on a bridge if it meant keeping the officers safe, the community safe, and not allowing those individuals to tear up any more property in the city of Dallas.
0: You know, as you're talking, I can't help but think about how Black Lives Matter as a movement and a slogan has been met by some people with Blue Lives Matter, which usually means that people are opposed to the Black Lives Matter movement. And specifically, it's around supporting police, but it's a very oppositional framework. But someone like you is a blue life and a Black life. How do you make sense of that? So
2: I think you make sense of it by stating the obvious, that you don't have to be one or the other. Why can't you be both? I've been a Black woman for 49 years. And I've also been a police officer for 22. So at no time when I became a police officer did that negate or take away or stop me from being a Black woman. So how can blue lives matter and Black lives not? And how can Black lives matter and blue lives not? I happen to be both. And there's so many of us in this country that are both. And so I think what happens is we have to respect each of them for what they are. And I think that is when we truly are able to have the mutual conversation. I know that there's work to do in Black lives and there's a lot of work to do in blue lives. And being a police chief has allowed me to make those necessary adjustments in both.
0: Why did you decide to resign, you know, um, since you are so committed to this work?
2: The average tenure for any police chief is about three to five years. And it was just at this time where I felt like it was time for me to take my position, take my voice um, and take my passion to another level and to do something different with that. And so I made that choice. I'm very happy with that choice. But I believe that greater work is done beyond the level of a police chief. So
0: can you tell us what that is, or are you still playing it close to the vest? I am
2: playing it extremely close to the vest right now.
0: Chief Hall, really thank you for spending time with us, and best with whatever your next adventure is.
2: God bless. Thank you for taking
0: time to interview me. Uh, I wish you guys much success. That was Chief Renee Hall of the Dallas, Texas Police Department. Coming up later this hour...
4: Let's kind of think of this as as like being at a holiday dinner table, right? Like how close are you actually sitting to the best dishes, right? And how close are you close enough that folks actually hear you when you're talking? Or are you like near the end or at the kids' table, like waiting on your turn to talk, right? Or waiting to get what's left of the mashed potatoes?
0: You're listening to Our Body Politic. It's time for Sipping the Political Tea, our weekly deep dive with Aaron Haynes, editor at large at the 19th and political contributor at Our Body Politic. Hey, Aaron.
4: Hey, good to be with you.
0: So we are post election, at least according to everyone but the resident of 1600 Pennsylvania. Sure. And. Um, And so there's a lot of political news to cover, even as certain people think the election isn't over. Um, Nonetheless, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris is selecting members of her White House staff, including two women of color, her chief of staff and her domestic policy advisor. So what's your take on those announcements?
4: Yeah, I mean, well, listen, Farai, uh, this past week marks about a month since election day. As you mentioned, we have aged, my sister. Uh, And we're less than 50 days now until Inauguration Day, and and we do have a new administration that is beginning uh, to take shape and preparing to take office, right? And so Joe Biden and Kamala Harris both indicated, both during the campaign and, and in their kind of victory speeches and beyond, that diversity was going to be a governing priority and, and not something that was really going to stop with the first woman and person of color to serve as the second most powerful person in the country. Um, you know, so you've had the transition team rolling out these nominees and appointees over the past few weeks. And and, and there is indeed some diversity, both in terms of race and gender, uh, as well as some pioneering first. But I will tell you, I mean, I'm hearing from Black and brown lawmakers and leaders who have been cautiously optimistic over the past month. Um, you know, they've been sitting back and watching uh, these these uh, announcements come out. And, and they are concerned uh, both about how much diversity is yeah. going to be in this administration as well as where that diversity might be uh, like in the governing hierarchy, right? Like, I mean, it's a holiday. So like, let's kind of think of this as, as like being at a holiday dinner table, right? Like how close are you actually sitting to the best dishes, right? And how close mm. enough, are you close enough that folks actually hear you when you're talking? Or are you like near the end or at the kids table, like waiting on your turn to talk, right? Or wait, yep. get what's left of the mashed potatoes. I mean, you know, basically what I'm trying to say is that seats matter, right? But But where those seats are, is an equally important conversation. And and those in a position to influence uh, the decision makers on this transition team know that they need to weigh in now uh, with whatever their concerns are. Let's
0: pivot, though, to the state of Georgia. It seems like we revisit this every week, you know, because now we've got a voting official in the state who's criticizing the president for failing to condemn threats of violence. Here's a clip.
5: Mr. President... You have not condemned these actions or this language. Senators, you have not condemned this language or these actions. This has to stop.
0: And this is from a Republican official. And there have been many Republican officials who've certified election results, etc. But what are we to make of it at this crossroads?
4: Yeah, well, listen, I've certainly got my eye on my home state of Georgia uh, as this runoff Uh, ticks down to the final days. Look, uh, there's no uh, other way to say it, that the Georgia GOP is absolutely a house divided, headed into the final stretch of this runoff campaign. You have Trump surrogates kind of openly suggesting that maybe folks shouldn't bother casting their ballots in Georgia in a rigged system, right? I mean, a lawsuit being filed, Seeking to overturn the results of the election and calling on the General Assembly to appoint state representatives to the Electoral College to decide the election. And, and another federal lawsuit claiming widespread voter fraud, despite the fact that the votes in Georgia now have been counted, I think, three times. Um, you know, I will tell you, Farai, I, uh, I am, am, am talking to uh, folks on both sides on the ground down there. Uh, and, and despite election and COVID fatigue, uh, Democrats definitely seem energized. I mean, I just saw a tweet from Stacey Abrams that that one million Georgians have requested mail-in ballots for this runoff. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. but I'm but I'm also told that something like eight hundred thousand African Americans in the state did not show up to vote in November, which is really just an incredible number to think about. Uh, despite the record turnout that you did see in the general election, so. I mean, there's still tremendous opportunity. This is, you know, the home stretch for voter registration uh, down in Georgia. Early voting is about to kick off in the next several days. So we'll just have to continue to watch to see what kind of that the lines and, and what that enthusiasm down there looks like uh, on, on both sides.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's fascinating to me and sad, to be honest, that um, the claims of a rigged election will likely cause voter suppression. In this case, may be very well suppression of Republican votes. But, you know, I yeah. am someone who wants everyone to have a chance to express their political
4: will. And and for um, everyone to believe in the sanctity of our democratic yes, process, right? I mean, every, yes, regardless yes, of absolutely. what your politics are, folks should feel like their ability to, to, to participate in this democracy and the idea that one person, one vote, that should not be a partisan opinion Uh, people of all political stripes, of no political stripes, uh, she should really uh, subscribe to that.
0: Yeah, I mean, the reason I sort of said but is because this would be suppression of Republican voters by Republican actors who are saying that the vote is rigged. It's a fascinating cycle. Absolutely. All right, Erin, lots of food for thought. Thank you. Until next time, Farai. That was Erin Haynes, editor-at-large at The 19th and political contributor here at Our Body Politic. Coming up.
5: One of the things that really has changed during this time is colleges and universities rethinking the complexity of their admission process.
0: Each week, we bring you the latest news on the coronavirus pandemic and how it's affecting us, our families, and our communities. So today, more people are surviving COVID-19 than during the first wave this spring. Doctors actually learned a lot about what to do and what not to do, including not putting as many people on ventilators. But new infections are surging and the daily death toll has been spiking up to near the record set in April. In vaccine news, both Pfizer and Moderna have asked the Food and Drug Administration for emergency authorization to distribute their coronavirus vaccines. If they get the green light quickly, people could get the first shots later this month. We're going to hear more about COVID and higher education later in the show. Students of all ages are just being whipsawed by decisions to open and close schools, which also frustrates parents and teachers. Students of color and low-income students are struggling in the era of Zoom classes. They're less likely to have access to quality technology, to not have to share that equipment with others, and to have a quiet space to work in. Eighth grader Azariona Crudup told NorthJersey.com she depends on a laptop that's on the fritz.
4: I miss Zoom calls. I miss advisory. So I do miss a lot of classes, which is not my fault. It's my computer's fault because it's broke. According
0: to consulting firm McKinsey, low-income students are projected to fall behind by more than a year because of the pandemic, with Black and Hispanic students faring worse than white students. So far, in-person instruction doesn't seem to cause a lot of community spread of the virus, especially among younger students, but children are not immune. The American Academy of Pediatrics reported last week that over 1.3 million kids tested positive for the virus since the start of the pandemic. And that's got parents weighing their options carefully. My kids were miserable when they were at home full-time doing
1: school. Given the choices we had, I don't know that I would have made a different one.
0: That's Andrea Dalton in Tucson, Arizona. She says her entire family now has COVID after her daughter came home from middle school with mild symptoms. Andrea's a community college student herself. She has an in-person final coming up, and if she's not feeling better by then, she's not sure if she's going to make it.
1: It's not exactly something I can do on paper or online. So um, I imagine I'm probably going to get an
0: incomplete According to a survey conducted by the U.S. Census Bureau, more than 9 million college students said they canceled their plans to attend classes this fall because they had COVID-19 or they were afraid of getting it. About the same number said they were unable to afford classes because of the pandemic. For more about how the pandemic is impacting higher education, I talked to Dr. Angel Perez, CEO of the National Association for College Admission Counseling, or NACAC. He's a self-proclaimed big old nerd who grew up poor in Puerto Rico and then the Bronx. After he got a full ride to Skidmore College in upstate New York, he knew he wanted to give back and help other young students make it to college. Dr. Perez, it's so great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. We are in such a strange space. Um, I happen to know a woman who's a university president, and I read an article that that university is more than $10 million underwater right now due to the cost of the pandemic and students not going, housing not being filled. After COVID, which you know we are all aspiring to, What do you think will have changed about college educations for the better and possibly for the worse?
5: I think there's a lot of things that are going to change. I think the way that we think about teaching and learning um, has changed. You know, colleges and universities had to go online very quickly. Many who were not ready to do so, but sort of learned trial by fire, if you will. I also think a lot of things that could potentially change are even the ways that we think about the pipeline to college, um, how students get into college. One of the things that really has changed during this time is colleges and universities rethinking the complexity of their admission process, realizing that that actually keeps a lot of kids out of college. Um, One of the things, for example, that happened this summer is that, Oh, about, I think right now we're at about 1,400 schools that have gone test optional. So the SAT and the ACT are not required, obviously, because so many students can't take the exam right now. But one of the questions they're now asking is, is that something that we would bring back? Is that something that was really a, a roadblock, particularly for low-income students and Black and Brown students in this country? And so I think really the, the pandemic, as well as the racial reckoning moment in our history at this time, is going to have a significant impact and profound impact on colleges and universities.
0: So let's role play for a second. Um, let's say that President-elect Biden and VP-elect Harris called you up and said, hey, Dr. Perez, um, what is our top priority for the first hundred days and for the first year in office? What would you tell them?
5: Wow, first of all, i take the call. Um, <laughs> it's, But second, I mean, there's so many different ways I could answer that. But I would say the most important thing is providing more resources for under-resourced, both schools, so K through 12, but also higher education. I think higher education is often overlooked. We live in a country right now where higher education is not seen as a public good, it's a private good. And I think we need to move the needle closer towards funding higher education so our students can afford to go and they don't graduate with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And so if I had my way, I would really fight hard for the funding of both of those systems.
0: And for people who are parents who, you know, there's a lot of parents right now whose kids might normally be gearing up to apply to college and they're like, yeah, you know, the pandemic or kids that took a gap year that would have ordinarily applied. But there's also kids who may have had a year to think things through um, and really want to apply and, and go in. What do parents and students need to know?
5: Colleges and universities actually have never been more accessible and more flexible. And so because of the pandemic, many more institutions are really, you know, removing requirements, extending deadlines, trying to meet students where they are. And so this is an incredibly important time to jump into the process. And I would say to form relationships with admission officers. They want to help students get into college. And so reaching out directly to institutions and even saying, I don't know where to start, um, I think would be a really important first step. Whatever you do, take that first step, because even if you're not 100 percent sure that you want to enroll in the fall, you can always make that decision later. You can ask colleges to defer for a year, but it's important to be in the process now, especially if you're currently in school with access to your counselors.
0: Dr. Perez, thanks so much for joining us.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: That was Angel Perez, CEO of the National Association for College Admission Counseling. The doctors told us to stay home for Thanksgiving, but millions of Americans still traveled to see family. How big will the surge in coronavirus cases be? And what do we need to know to minimize getting sick for the rest of the holiday season? We checked in with Dr. Kavita Trivedi, our go-to expert for all things COVID. She's a CDC-trained epidemiologist based in the Bay Area. Dr. Trivedi, it's always great to talk to you. Welcome
6: back. Thanks for having me back again.
0: So, you know, for Thanksgiving, what I did, usually we have these huge family Thanksgivings, which definitely didn't happen this year. I made the decision not to test before having dinner with my mother because, you know, I did worry about the potential lag time. Like if I had been exposed the day before, you know, I didn't know if it was gonna show up. And also, honestly, I worried about even getting exposed in line. So all -hmm. of which is to say, what does testing do and not do for you in terms of being around your loved ones?
6: I think the first thing to know is that testing is not a prevention strategy in and of itself, right? Just because you get tested and you're negative, first of all, we know the tests are um are are not infallible there there are problems with all different types of tests and also i think the other thing to be aware of is you get tested in in one one moment and that may take into account your exposures the last you know Few weeks. But then, as you're waiting for the test results to come back, usually it's at least 24 hours, if not longer. Mm -hmm. And in that time period, people are then exposed to other things, right? So, the other thing that we're finding is that people that are asymptomatic, that have no signs and symptoms Mm -hmm. of, of infection, have a higher likelihood of having a false negative. Uh, The the tests Mm. are not as good necessarily at picking up a positive result if you have no symptoms. So so again, I think we have to remember testing is an adjunct and gives us some information, but we don't want to just rely on a test itself to then uh, being with um, our family and friends without masks, without distancing, unless, you know, parties are bubbled where before you bubble, mm-hmm. you quarantine, isolate yourself for two weeks, and then you form this larger bubble and you basically have a pandemic marriage is yep. what you decided <laughs> to do, right? So, but in order to do that safely, everyone who is going to go into this pandemic marriage has to agree on what our behavior is going to be in the two weeks before we Mary. and um, and that all of those discussions are are really important to make it very clear. Are you going to go to the grocery store? Are you going to um, go to the farmers market with a mask on? What are you going to? You know, all those things have to be discussed before you then form this bubble and can feel really comfortable without a mask on and and um, not socially distancing with one another.
0: What do you want to tell listeners? who haven't gotten sick, and I'm just like, I'm so over this. Like, I mean, I'm reading the news. There's been uh, a sex party in Queens, New York, um, which is probably unsafe on many different levels. Uh, There's been a 400-person, you know, party for millennials that got broken up. There was a 7,000-person wedding, and that's just in New York. One city, Mm -hmm. you know, so um, for people who are just like, I'm tired of putting life on hold. What do Mm -hmm. you say?
6: So for those of us that have been lucky enough not to be exposed, not to get the virus, have had adequate access to PPE, you know, stay the course and, you know, persevere. We can do this. Um, And the way I like to talk about it is the Swiss cheese model, right? Where we layer different slices of Swiss cheese between us and the virus. And we layer each slice is a mask, is worn properly, by the way, over your nose and your mouth. Um, Another layer is um, physical distancing. Another layer is washing hands uh, whenever you touched anything outside of your household. And another layer is staying home when you're sick. We do all of those things. And then maybe in December, maybe next year, we get to add this additional slice of the vaccine, which will likely be a much thicker slice. Um, And then we will have to continue with all these other four slices um, as we wait for our entire communities to get vaccinated.
0: Well, Dr. Trevetti, thanks so much. And, you know, definitely to everyone listening, including a certain member of my family... Uh, the mask does have to go over your nose, just saying.
6: Thanks. Thanks, Fry, And I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think the, the only other comment I would make is that if you don't wear the mask over your nose, it's like wearing a condom with the tip cut off, if that is helpful to any of your listeners.
3: All right. Public health for the win there. Thanks again. Coming up next, there are people that you don't know that you may not ever meet that are still connect to you. I'm Farai
0: Chidea, back with you shortly. Now it's time to show me the money. That's what we call our regular business segment with Our Body Politic contributor Ruth Umo of Forbes magazine. This week, we're looking at the possibility of student debt forgiveness under a Biden-Harris administration and who will benefit the most. Welcome, Ruth. Thank you for having me. So obviously, we have gone through a long political journey, and it's just going to keep rolling on as politics does. But there was a lot of talk when President-elect Biden said that he was going to cancel student debt in the first 100 days in office. Um, What do we know about this? And what do you think it might do in terms of impacting Black women and women of color?
7: One interesting aspect of his proposal is an immediate $10,000 forgiveness of student loans, which in theory would allow borrowers to see their balances reduced or eliminated overnight. Uh, Some 90% of Black students take out loans for college. That's compared to just 66% of white students. Another report found that 20 years after starting college, Uh, the majority of white borrowers are able to pay off nearly all of their student loans. On the flip side, Black borrowers still own 95% of their original balance 20 years later, It's also worth noting that the pandemic-fueled federal economic protections for student loans expire at the end of December. Uh, At the same time, Black Americans' unemployment numbers remain higher than the national average. And so what we could see here is the student loan debt crisis truly come to a head in January as people of color, Black people in particular, have to decide between paying off crippling student loan debt or feeding their family, paying their rents, their mortgage or even medical bills. Because, again, we are still in the midst of a global and, and fatal pandemic.
0: We've been talking to people about what happens to higher education in a pandemic. Do you have any sense of whether or not it's, you know, college is as strong of a win in terms of the job market as it used to be before?
7: I think that college is still as strong of a win. Uh, when it comes to entrepreneurship, for instance, some people do argue, okay, well, you don't necessarily need to go to college in order to create a business. But one aspect of creating a business is raising money. And much of that is through your social network. And it's very hard to find that if you don't go to college. Um, however, it is worth noting, again, that a number of institutions, like tech institutions, such as IBM and Google, they are also focused more so on skills-based hiring. Um, and so while they might not be looking for uh, employees or graduates, I should say, who went to Harvard or Stanford or some of the typical Ivy Leagues, they're now more so diversifying their talent pool. And they're looking for students who maybe did two years at community college or four years at community college, or those who went to uh, Howard University and other HBCUs or minority serving institutions.
0: What do you think the impact would be for businesses to have employees that just had
3: less debt?
7: While student loan debt hinders aspiring entrepreneurship, now some entrepreneurs are able to circumvent this issue, this financial burden, by seeking out wealthy family members for startup capital or tapping into a network of outside investors. Most Black Americans, however, don't have that luxury. So money saved through student debt cancellation is money that can be used as the upfront investment needed to start a business. And it allows young entrepreneurs, Black ones in particular, to secure additional loans from a bank or to inject money into things that lead to business growth, such as Mm -hmm. upgraded tools and infrastructure uh, or hiring additional employees who can scale a company and help it reach profitability.
0: Well, that leads into something that you wrote about, you know, a holiday season, the beginning of the holiday shopping rush formally, um, and this effort about, quote, putting the black in Black Friday um, to get people to support black owned businesses. Um, Do we know anything about what kind of impact that had?
7: In the run-up to Black Friday, uh, several tech companies like TikTok, Facebook, Google, they use their platforms to spotlight Black-owned businesses and provide them with visibility in an effort to drive money toward these smaller businesses that have been really hard hit by the pandemic. We don't have any numbers as of yet as to how Black businesses in particular have been affected in their sales and profitability. But anecdotally, uh, a number of Black-owned businesses have reported a sales spike from Black Friday through Cyber Monday, because in all honesty, 2020 has brought representation to the forefront for everyone, uh, which which has led to a small but noteworthy financial win for Black businesses that have an online presence.
0: And, you know, how long do you think we can expect people to focus on black business owners? There's definitely been a lot of talk, but people tend to go in and out of really dealing with race relations.
7: Oh, gosh, that's the million dollar question, right? (laughs) Well, the corporate sector has, in some ways, led the response to calls for racial justice this year. But at the end of the day, it really boils down to public interest. If Americans continue to prioritize hot-button issues like racial equity, and if uh, larger entities continue to create space for smaller Black businesses on their platforms, we very well might be able to see some lasting change.
0: Well, Ruth, always great to talk to you. Thanks. Likewise. Thank you. Ruth Umo is a Forbes magazine reporter and business and economics contributor here at Our Body Politic. COVID 19 has hit certain groups the hardest healthcare workers, the elderly, and essential workers. At the center of these three concentric circles are Filipino Americans. At 4 million, they only represent about 1% of Americans, but 28% of nurses across the country. The organization National Nurses United says Filipino-Americans were the largest non-white ethnic group of nurses to die from the virus. A new Filipino organization, Tayo Help, wants to raise awareness of the disproportionate impact of the pandemic on this community while dispelling dangerous myths that are hurting the most vulnerable among them.
1: Tayo uh, in Tagalog, uh, a major Philippine language, means us. So we'd like to say that the Tayo Help Desk is powered by us, for us. And um, the reason that this is so important to us is that there's nothing really culturally tailored to the Filipino community that's currently out there.
0: That's Lizelle Lao. She's a multimedia journalist, senior editor for membership and innovation at HuffPost and program director and spokesperson of Tayo Help. Tang Lau says Tayo Help makes official information about COVID more accessible to groups of Filipinos for whom cultural norms can sometimes be barriers to access.
1: If my Lola and Lolo, which means grandparents, grandmother and grandpa, respectively, in Tagalog, if I were to give them, let's say, an official CDC website article or um, World Health Organization article, um, it, you know, it's factually correct, but it may not be always easily accessible to them. So what we've been trying to do is take, um, you know, from official sources as well as tapping into our expert network and, um, you know, putting together articles that make it more accessible to, one of, to some of the most vulnerable um, sectors of our community.
0: Tang Lao and her colleagues are also using Tayo help to create safe spaces for Filipinos to get support.
1: So oftentimes uh, in the community, no, you don't want to let people know you're sick or you don't want to ask for help. You know, you want to be independent and you don't want to be indebted to somebody. Um, but you do need the help. So we're trying to op- create a space that's safe enough that it's okay. And we can't help you if we don't know you need the help, for example. Um, there's also a, cult- a cultural barrier of um, bahalana, which means... Loosely translated to leave it to God. You know, it's like, I'll be fine. <laughs> you know, God's going to take care of me. Well, part of that, <laughs> too, is also meeting meeting him halfway.
0: Antio Tayo Help Desk is fighting misinformation,
1: too. We have a large uh, number of our population that are senior citizens. And um, most of them are on a lot of messaging apps, such as Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp and I can't tell you how many times I've been forwarded a meme or some piece of information that's just completely false. So what we're trying to do is also provide uh, more reliable information that is also shareable so that instead of them sharing a graphic that purports to have a home remedy for COVID-19, they can be sharing something that's actually true. That was Lizelle
0: Tanglau, Program Director and Spokesperson for Tayo Help. You can support Tayo Help Desk by donating at tayohelp.com. That's T-A-Y-O help.com. I want to keep hearing from you, our listeners, our community. We've been giving you prompts and using your answers to craft conversations about shaping our collective future. This month, the prompt is, How would your day be different if you spent as much time on community, family, creativity, and wellness as you do on working? You can call 929-353-7006. That's 929-353-7006 to leave us a voicemail on our platform, Speak. Or you can go to farai.com slash OBP and scroll down to find a Google form to respond in writing. Morgan Jerkins is a New York Times best-selling author and senior editor for Zora, an online publication that amplifies the voices of women of color. Her new book is Wandering in Strange Lands, A Daughter of the Great Migration Reclaims Her Roots. To report it, she set off on a pilgrimage across the South, learning firsthand about the Black, Native American, and Creole community she's connected to. Morgan Jerkins, welcome to Our Body Politic.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: I want to start actually at the end of your book, and you sort of wrap things up with the reverse migration of people whose families came from the South to other parts of the country, and they are moving Mm -hmm. to the South as young adults. That turned out to be a huge factor in the election because people have been in the North and the West, have created this new South, and it just flexed Mm -hmm. its political power. So starting with that, tell us a little bit about the reverse migration.
3: I wanted to talk about it because towards the end of the book, I was like, okay, so where do we go from here? I'd already been to the South. I went across the Mississippi to the Midwest and finally the West Coast. And it made me realize that so much of African-American lives is characterized by movement. It's like wherever we can find a piece of beauty or freedom, we're going to go. I was in a panel talk the other day, and there was this quote from Maya Angelou that was from years ago. It was talking about Black people moving back to the South and saying that Black people were answering a siren call. Because it's true. We're we're cosmically and spiritually connected to the South, and I think younger people are feeling that call. I wrote Wandering in Strange Lands because I had such deep insecurity about my place in both my matrilineal and patrilineal lines. And so I wanted a healing pilgrimage of sorts. I knew that because I was an African-American with roots generations deep in this country, that there was so much I wouldn't be able to reclaim across the Atlantic in West Africa. And because so much of the questions that I asked towards my mother and my father could not be answered, I decided to take a reverse migratory route, if you will, in order to find some type of clarity for not only myself, but for my family members as well.
0: You take us on so many different journeys. And, you know, I think about you going to Georgia and South Carolina to the Lowcountry, and I was really stunned to find out how many Africans passed into America and into slavery Mm -hmm. through the Lowcountry. Could you just Mm -hmm. give
3: us a little context for that? It's believed that 80% of the enslaved Africans who were into the colonies, they passed through a Charleston dock. And so not only that, but the Gullah Geechee people uh, that are you know in the the Georgia, South Carolina, and Florida that corridor, they are known as having the highest retention rates of West African traditions. For me, I thought about it with regards to food. Every New Year's Day, I ate collard greens for money and black-eyed peas for b- good luck, and that is a tradition that spans all across the country. Well, that tradition started in the South Carolina Low Country. So taking into all these factors, I believe that every African-American is indebted to the Gullah Geechee people. You know, I could stay on this
0: forever, but I really want to get through all the sections of your book. So Mm -hmm. first we got the low country and then the second one is Louisiana Creole. You also talk about being identified, you know, picked out in a group by your half moon eyes. Is that right? Yes, half-moon eyes. And tell us about how people saw themselves in you, even when you didn't understand what it meant.
3: I went to a festival in Lafayette, and a Black woman said to me, are you from St. Landry Parish? Mm. And I was just struck. And one of the other liaisons who I was with, she was like, it's those half-moon eyes and it made me very emotional because when I would take pictures, my mom would always say, open your eyes, because it always feels like, you know, my eyes are really small. Mm. And it was only in Louisiana that I was given this poetic description of what they meant. And that made me feel so whole. And, yeah. and that's when I knew that I was on the right path.
0: Wow, it's amazing. And in the, this book, you also go to Oklahoma. Yes. So what did you look into there?
3: Oh, man, because I don't know if you've t- t- experienced this, but a lot of black people I know will say i got Indian in my family. Oh,
0: yeah. My family thought that, too.
3: And what I realized was, and this was not taught to me in K-12 through education. Was that when former President Andrew Jackson forced five tribes, known as the five civilized tribes, the Cherokee, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, the Seminole and the Creek. Part of the reason why they were called the five civilized tribes is because white people thought they could be civilized through slavery. So these five civilized tribes enslaved black people and the Cherokee tribe was the largest slave holding tribe out of the five of them. So when they migrated, uh, forcibly migrated across the Mississippi, they had Black people on that journey. When Civil War ended, there was this question of, what do we do with our Black people now, that they're freedmen? Are they citizens of the United States? Are they citizens of these tribes? And so they went into Oklahoma, and they started separating people. But they did this a lot of times based on how you looked. Mm. So if you and I were in the same family, right, Let's say you looked more indigenous than I did. You would be put on the citizen by blood role, and I would be put on the freedman role. The problem of put, being put on the freedman role, which delineates African ancestry, is that it makes it seem like you have no indigenous blood. Mm. Now, here's the consequence of that in the present day age. When you have black and indigenous people who've always known they were black and indigenous, they are shut out from health care educational benefits, housing benefits. Because of these freedmen roles, the blackness is supposed to to just cancel everything out. So that's the problem with this whole either or instead of both in, is that in the case of these freedmen, it actually becomes law and it shuts you out and it divides families for generations. It was very intense.
0: You know, your whole book is about how Black people relate to the history of America as a land and as a country. So, you know, what do we really need to know about this land and our relationship to it?
3: Man, Black people were everywhere. That's one thing. There's not a single place in America where Black people were not present. Mm. I think another thing that I would say to people is that there's so much that's been hidden from us, and it was by design, Mm. So there's always surprises to be had. And that's what I think the beauty is about this country. In spite of all of its terrors, there are people that you don't know that you may not ever meet that are still connect to you through your food or through your dialect or through your customs. And that's, for me, is just wonderful.
0: Mm. Morgan Jerkins is the author of Wandering in Strange Lands, a Daughter of the Great Migration Reclaims Her Roots. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is presented and syndicated by KCRW, KPCC and KQED. It's produced by Lantigua Williams and Co. I'm the creator and host Farai Chidea. Juleka Lantigua Williams is executive producer. Paulina Velasco is senior producer. Cedric Wilson is lead producer and mixed this episode. Original music by Kojin Tashiro. Our political booker is Mary Knowles. Michelle Baker and Emily Daly are assistant producers. Production assistance from Mark Betancourt, Michael Castaneda, Zuhira Ali,
5: Sarah McClure, and Virginia Laura. Funding for Our Body Politic is provided by Craig Newmark Philanthropies and by the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, empowering world-changing work.